Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. We're in the series... Called Jesus said what? And these are things that Jesus said that don't readily make sense. They, they challenge us. They, if you will, shatter our preconceptions of who we think Jesus is. You see, here's what I've learned through ministry is that many people come to Jesus with a very specific role they want him to play. Most people in our culture, they come to Jesus wanting him to play the kind of divine snuggie, if you will. But then what happens is Jesus says these things like we're going to look at throughout this month, and we're like, oh, no, Jesus, don't say that. Please don't say that. Please don't say that. Let's take that portion out of the Bible. Let's don't look at that portion. Why? Because we're confronted with the reality of whether or not we're really going to let Jesus be who Jesus is. Listen, if you're going to come to Jesus, if you're going to come to Jesus, you have to at least have enough integrity to let him be who he is. So, so, so even if we deny him or push him away, that's one thing. That's a whole lot better than editing him to accept someone who he's not. All right? A whole lot better. In fact, in a great museum here in America, there is Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Remember Diamonds in the Making? Thomas Jefferson went through the Bible, and he cut out portions of the Bible that he did not like. And Thomas Jefferson has a Bible on display in an American museum with these chunks of Scripture that are taken out, much like what happens in modern-day culture. They're taking passages what we call the new left, out of the Bible, passages that have been interpreted the same way for thousands of years and are saying we need to look at them in a new way, right? We don't get to edit the parts of Jesus we don't like. we got to receive him as he is or we reject him as he is. Well, these statements that we're going to look at this month, they confront us with the hard parts of Jesus. They put Jesus, or if we can say it this way, the real Jesus on display. Several years ago, we were wrestling with Jesus. I was wrestling personally with Jesus in church planning and it's before I'd even talked to Pastor Chad, and I went on a trip where I was preaching one time, and as I was preaching, uh, I was able to go to an amusement park, and I went to that amusement park and hung out with a pastor and a couple of other friends before the, the weekend services, and we're there in an amusement park that did the, the, the Christmas carols in a beautiful way, and I remember sitting there around tons of unbelievers, and, and right in the middle of this presentation, they started reading this poem, and as they read this poem, I was so struck with the vision and the beauty of the life of Jesus. This poem is called One Solitary Life. I would like for you to read it. I want you to feel the resonance as we read along uh, among the people. This is what the, the, the poem read. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family, never owned a home. He didn't go to college, he never lived in a big city, never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. By this point, this person who's reading on stage has me resonating quickly. I mean, I'm about to stand up, and he hadn't even gotten halfway through the point. And I'm looking around me, and everybody else is just sitting there, right? And he had no credentials, this, this poem says, but himself. The poem continues on. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. I'm feeling this rush at this point. In fact, now people are starting to clap 
in this amusement park presentation. I'm feeling such a resonance with Jesus. People are clapping. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. The 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he's the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. This poem is called One Solitary Life. I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling this rush such a resonance with this beautiful picture of the one that I've given my life for and want to live my life for. And I was so torn because most people I meet, they're like, I don't even know if you really lived. How do you live with this dissonance? How do you live with this overwhelming passion, drop to my knees, want to cry when I read something like this, and then live in a culture and a world where people are even questioning whether or not he lived? question whether or not even his words are really words. And so why are we doing this series? We're doing this series because we want to bring that person back to the center of attention. We want to bring that person back to the center of Woodstock attention. The the beauty and the wonder of the person of Jesus. And what we want to do as a community is we want to start wrestling. And we want to wrestle with that person's words and get Jesus back in the attention of our world. Jesus is worthy of our consideration. If you believe that, can I hear an amen? So today we're going to look at one of the most recognizable statements Jesus ever made. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if you ask the average guy on the street, average guy on the street, to quote two verses from the Bible, this is one of those verses. All right, this is a pop culture I called verse. In fact, when I typed in on Google, I've got an image for you. When I typed in on Google, the Bible says not to, and that's what I stopped. The Bible says not to on a Google search. Here's what Google auto search suggested for me. It said the Bible says not to eat shrimp. I don't know where that came from. I have no idea. I don't know if it's a keto diet. I don't know what in the world's happening right here in this trend in our, our area. But not to eat shrimp. The second one, the Bible says not to, not to judge. This is how we do sermon research, ladies and gentlemen. This is how we do it. Not to worry, not to eat shellfish. I have no idea what's the deal with Woodstock, right? Not to eat pork, not to call someone a fool, not to mark your body, which is a misappropriation of Levitical law, right? Not to have a tattoo. But, but we hear in our culture, we hear in our culture this reality. The Bible says not to judge. Judge not is one of the most popular verses in our culture because it seems to fit in with two of our culture's most basic assumptions. That's number one, religion is private. And number two, morality is relative which means you really can't tell anybody what they believe is wrong because religion is just a matter of preference. You're not allowed to tell anybody in America what they believe is wrong because that's just preference. Like, it's Coke or Pepsi, which clearly is Pepsi, right? A whole lot sweeter, gives you a whole lot more belching than the Coke, right? You understand what I'm saying? I drink neither of them. I would be not here preaching in front of you, all right? Or a Waffle House and IHOP, which is clearly Waffle House. Clearly Waffle House. I know what's right in my book, okay, but it's a matter of preference, I've heard, I've heard Bill Maher, Bill Maher, who's not even a Christian, a few nights ago on TV, he says to someone being interviewed, who are you to say that that's wrong? Doesn't the Bible say judge not? He's not even a Christian. Is that really what Jesus means when he says judge not? No. So let's figure out what he means. And I guess the best way to figure out what he means is to actually go to what he said. 
So let's read what he said. Matthew chapter 7, six verses in our hearing. Judge not, verse 1, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck of dust that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me make, take that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the two by four out of your own eye, then you will see clearly take the sawdust out of your brother's eye. And then this verse, and this is a jewel of a verse. This is politically correct in America. Don't give dogs what's holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, and then they turn to attack you. Okay, if judge not lest you not be judged is music to modern ears, that last verse is just the opposite. Did Jesus just refer to people as dogs and pigs? Think about it. Basically, Jesus says in this one passage, don't judge and then be careful because some of your friends are pigs. Don't judge and some of you are actually pigs. Like, what does all this mean? Let's see if we can make some sense of it. Let's ask a couple of questions. Number one, question. What does Jesus mean, first of all, by judging? What does he mean by judging? Well, what he means by judging, judging, he can't mean that you never tell anyone that they are wrong because Jesus spent his whole entire ministry telling people they were wrong. That characterized his ministry, okay? It can't mean that. Let me explain. In fact, just a few verses after this, just go down a few verses to verse 13 and 14. Jesus says this, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Many are going that way, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So he said, strive to enter in by the narrow gate. Well, that doesn't sound like a, hey, whatever you want to do, whatever approach you want to take to the Father's fine. You live however you want to live. Who am I to judge? I'm just the king of the universe. Later on in Matthew, he tells a group of people, Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, you are wrong. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's not touchy-feely Jesus, 21st century, make himself comfortable in American nominal Christianity Jesus. Right? That's not the person who fits here. In fact, here's how Jesus characterizes his whole life. John chapter 7, verse 7. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I keep telling the world its works are evil. That doesn't sound like, uh, who am I to correct? Jesus hippie walking around in Birkenstocks saying it's legal in Colorado, bro. <laughs> it doesn't fit that agenda, does it? Doesn't fit that agenda for Jesus. And yet Jesus' followers would do the exact same thing. John the Baptist literally lost his head as a result of challenging King Herod because King Herod had a different view of sexual orientation than he did, and he wasn't willing to compromise truth, so he put his head on a platter the next morning. This is what the followers of Jesus did. In fact, what did Paul say? He said, we are to rebuke the works of darkness. So what does it mean to judge not? It does not mean we're supposed to walk around and never tell people what's right or wrong. It can't mean that, according to Jesus. So what does it mean? Well, what I want to do today is give you some very practical things. So I've put them on your card, but if you want to take some additional notes, that would be awesome, lest the person next to you judge you and don't think you're a super Christian, okay? The whole sermon's about judging, but they'll do it, okay? I can't help them, all right? So just throw out the pen, take the card, let's write, all right? Big idea number one. Let's talk about big ideas. Big idea number one. You judge someone when you, not when you, I should say, assess their position but when you dismiss them as a person. 
You judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. The Bible says in John 3.17, and it's so sad because John 3.17 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but it gets totally enveloped by John 3.16, of which we mostly misappropriate too, right? And John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, but 3.17 tells us clearly what Jesus came to do. And the Bible says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So even though Jesus told people that their works were evil, and even though he made it clear to everyone, unless they enter by the narrow gate, they won't get into heaven, he still did not condemn the world. He didn't condemn the world. What does that mean? That means not condemning does not mean not telling the truth. Not condemning means it's about casting off a person after you tell them the truth. See, judging has nothing to do with the presentation of truth to the person in error. It has everything to do with what you do with the person after you've shared that error. Another way I can say this, it's what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you are condemning or judging them. It's after telling us the truth, Jesus brought us close. After he drew and spoke conviction, he then had compassion and drew a line in the mercy line in the sand and drew us to himself. The verse before John 3.16, or 3.17 is 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God gave his son for us. So he told us the truth and then he reached out his hand of friendship to us and laid down his life for us. Jesus speaks the truth and then invites us in to relationship with him. See, listen, church, Jesus did something so extraordinary that few Christian communities have ever been able to master. And that is the genius of holding both conviction and compassion in the same life. He did something that we are unable to do. Conviction and compassion. Jesus is the one who taught the Sermon on the Mount. You can't skip that one, by the way. Okay? Like, you can't read through, like, three chapters of all of Matthew's gospel, right? It's hard to take that out of the Bible. It's his most undisclosed, uh, clear teaching that he has there on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and you can't skip it. Some people say, well, Jesus doesn't care about your behavior. He cares more about your money than what you do with your genitals. Except Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, then what you've done is you've committed adultery in your heart with her. And when you committed adultery in your heart with her, it's better for you to cut off your hand or, or poke out your eye and go into the kingdom of God, Maine, than it is to go in whole into hell. Like Jesus said that. That's what Jesus said. That's hard sayings. Jesus also is the one who said, you know what, watch what you say, because if you speak words of dereliction against people, then you are murdering them with your own words. He says all of these things, and that yet you would expect, now that he's up the ante of discipleship, now that he's up the ante to the next level or the nth degree, you would expect him to now leave the Sermon on the Mount and say, hey, let's go find sinners and convert them. But Jesus comes down from the mountain, and the first thing he does is he has dinner with them. And he has parties with them. And Jesus does the unexpected. All the people who believed what he believes, but yet oppressed people, Jesus creates a line of mercy in the sand and invites them into his kingdom. Jesus has the ability in the Gospels, and that ability in the same Gospels to preach the kingdom of God. He preaches the most breathtaking, breathtaking ethical vision with a scandalous, compassionate invitation to those that are failing in that vision. Listen to me. Anytime you get someone who is all grace but no ethical vision, 
you are dealing with a distortion of Jesus. And anytime you get someone who is all vision and no ethics, you are dealing with what? A distortion of Jesus. Why? Jesus had conviction and compassion, and that's what makes him so compelling. That's what will make you compelling to the outside world too. Conviction and compassion. Unwilling to compromise on truth, yet drawing people to himself. See, we have to move into a world called America and embrace this, where you say to people you love, I cannot compromise on what Jesus taught, but I will love you so well and I will love you so profoundly that you're going to want to want what Jesus taught. So I'm not going to join you in your wrong perception. I won't do it. I can't. Jesus doesn't allow it. But I'm going to love you so much, you're going to want what Jesus taught because you're going to want what I have. That, my friends, is the need of our nation. That is the need of our hour. That is the need of our hour. Understanding how to love people in the midst of strong disagreement. That's big big idea number one. Big idea number two. Judging reflects extreme ignorance of our own sinfulness. Extreme ignorance of our own sinfulness. When Jesus talks about the speck of dust in your neighbor's eye and then the log in your own, what's he, what's he getting at? He's getting at hypocrisy, right? Under the mask. Chrysal, Greek, Latin phrase, hip, hupo. It's a Greek prefix called under. Under the mask. Hypocrisy. You're someone different. Under the mask. Sure, he's talking about hypocrisy. You shouldn't berate people for the very things that you're guilty of. It's like when the guy lectures his connect group about tithing when he's cheating on his taxes. It's like the guy who lectures you about not treating your wife right when he's looking at 20 minutes of porn every night when his wife's asleep. Okay? It's hypocrisy. It's complete hypocrisy. And yet, or like me, the church that I grew up in, right, I grew up knowing people that would flat condemn you, condemn you for smoking a cigar, saying your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit when they're 150 pounds overweight. I'd be like, bro, take the Swiss cake roll log out of your own eye before you lecture everyone else about the small leaf in their mouth. That's hypocrisy. Yes, it's hypocrisy. So he's saying, don't be a blatant hypocrite. If you are, if you are so enraged at somebody else's sin, but yet you can't see your own, he's telling you, obviously, don't be a hypocrite. But I think that Jesus is getting it more here. I think he's confronting what, what we are failing to grapple with. You know what that is? We fail to grapple with our own sinfulness. It's the number one thing we forget. Notice that Jesus assumes there's a log in our eye. Did you see that? He didn't say, if there's a log in your eye, you have a log in your eye. Do you notice that? There's not an if. It's not an if there's a log in your eye. There's a log in your eye. He assumes there's a log in your eye. Why? Because Christian doctrine teaches us that we are completely saturated with sin. There's sin all around us. Jesus said, and later in Matthew 15, he said the human heart was deeply depraved. It's like a, like a disease with symptoms. It's like a polluted well, right? And every bit of water that comes out of that well is tainted. All of the water out of a contaminated well is contaminated water. And I used to live in, I used to live in Medlin Hall at Lee University. I don't know what pipes the water came through to get to us, but the water tasted like fish. I don't know what kind of fish it was, but we tried to do whatever we could to cover up that taste. We would take... Uh, old country time lemonade powder, and we would we'd pour so much in it, it had the viscosity or thickness of like maple syrup, right? Just to try to, get the, try to get the fish taste out of the water. Were we getting rid of the 
carcinogens that were putting cancer in our body. No, we weren't doing that. All we were doing was masking it. And some of you in this room, you had different parents and personalities and experiences and upbringing where you learned to contain or cover up certain carcinogens in your heart. You learn to cover up some of the disease just a little bit or maybe some of the manifestations of the disease. But just because you show all the symptoms of a disease doesn't mean you have the disease. Maybe you can control all the symptoms, but you still have a depraved heart. And everything that comes out of that heart is depraved. That's why John Owen said, the seed of every sin is in every heart. The seed of every sin is in every heart. So when I'm talking to someone who's in sin at my workplace, or an heir, I should be painfully aware that I'm infected with the same sinful stuff that they are. And I have the world, the flesh, and the devil warring against me in the same way that they do. Listen, the seed of every sin that has ever been committed on the planet is in my heart and has the capacity. That's why Jesus changes our heart. That's why Jesus gives us a brand new heart. And um, you ever seen this... uh, TV series called Breaking Bad. If you've never seen it, don't judge me. This whole sermon is about judging. My wife and I, we tried to start watching. We couldn't. I'll be honest with you. I, I just couldn't get into it. I, I got three or four episodes in, and I just I couldn't. But, but, but the whole storyline is this, is this normal chemistry teacher who literally gets involved in a horrible man, and every season, subsequent season, he gets worse. And he is a meth dealer, right? And what's so amazing about the series, and so I pull, it pulls America in so quickly, is because there's consistent flashbacks showing you that this man had the capacity to do all of those things all in his previous life. He just didn't have the conditions that may be conducive enough to lead him in it, and that's exactly what's true of every sinner in our culture. Just because you grew up in a family, you didn't have the capacity to blow up the way they blew their life up doesn't mean your heart's any less depraved than their heart. The seed of every sin is in every human heart. And that's why he says, verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, what judgment was pronounced on me? Mercy. Shouldn't that be affect, uh, affect how I approach others? That God had a judgment towards me. It's called mercy. I'm going to die in your place, Craig. Won't that change my tone the way I talk to other people? After telling me the truth, Jesus brought me close. Won't that change how I approach others? After telling them the truth, I will draw them close. Listen, the antidote to judging is to remember the gospel. The antidote to judging is to remember the gospel, to be broken by the gospel, to consider Jesus' love for you, and to realize that he gave you mercy instead of judgment. Let me tell you, real quick, practically, how do you know when you're judging? If I were to label this next part of the message, just call it judgeometer. Here's how you know when you're judging. Number one, you are more enraged at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own sin. You're more enraged at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed at your own sin. Whose sin are you ticked off at right now? What a great question. Whose sin are you mad about? Maybe it's other people's sin in the church. You know what, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my favorite, one of my favorite authors of all time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book called Life Together, he gives the three spiritual stages of spiritual maturity in the church. Here's the three spiritual stages of spiritual maturity. He said, stage number one, you know you're an infant in Christ when you get disgusted at everybody else's sin in the church. Okay? 
When you get disgusted at everybody else's sin in the church, you're self-righteous and you're mad. Some people in this room, you may be right there right now. What the Bible says, or, or I should say, not the Bible, based off the deduction of Scripture, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this is stage number one. You're an infant, you're a babe in Christ. He says stage number two is when you become disgusted at your own sin and not other people's sin. In other words, you become aware of your own hypocrisy and not other people's hypocrisy and not others. This is like Paul saying, I'm the chief of all sinners. He understands I'm not disgusted at everybody else's sin. I'm disgusted more at my own sin. Okay? See, what we do is we take our most severe adversarial wrath and we turn it against the sin of other people and we have loving patience with the ambiguity in our own lives. But the more we grow in Christ, we're supposed to have loving patience with the ambiguity and sin in other people's lives and have a a fierce hatred for the sin in our own lives. So this is maturity. And here's stage number three. You know when you're spiritually mature? He says when you re-enter the church, no longer as a Pharisee, but as a real Christian who's ready to give great grace to everybody. Because you've been the recipient of great grace, you're ready to give great grace to everybody. Listen to me. In your marriage, can you list your spouse's sins quicker than you can tell me where you've sinned against your spouse? In the relationship with your family, can you list off right now the sins of your family members quicker than you can list off your own sins? (laughs) That's why he said in Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It means confronting with a gentle spirit. That means you have to confront the sin, but you do with a gentle spirit. Oh, 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 oh. he doesn't end there, though. He says, but consider yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Did you catch that? You may also be tempted. While confronting them, you will be tempted, Galatians 6, 1. Here's number two. Here's how you know when you're judging. You fail to forgive. You fail to forgive. You know what that means? You're saying, I will not let you offer what you did to me, even though I know God has forgiven me of everything. This is what Jesus said in the parable. He said, it's like being forgiven of $10 million. Remember, he goes before the judge, $10 million. He walks out of the courtroom. He's got tears flowing down his face. A dude comes across the street. He owes him $1.50 for an ice cream six months ago. He says, I'm not, I'm not letting you off the hook. Jesus said, this doesn't make sense. How could you not forgive anybody on earth if your father in eternity has forgiven you? It makes no sense. Do you even realize To not forgive someone is an ignorance of staggering proportion. Staggering proportion. Sometimes people say, um, well, I forgive, but I can't forget. What does that even mean? Can Can I meddle here just a minute? Seriously. I'm not trying to belittle anybody's pain that's been inflicted on them, but listen. That is a double standard. Like, I forgive them, but I won't forget it. Which basically means I, I'm going to say to you, I forgive because I don't want to be held accountable before God. But I'm going to stay mad at you, and I'm probably going to be a little cold to you. And if we get back in another argument, I'm going to bring it back up to you. That's not forgiving. You know what forgiving is? Forgiving is saying, I choose to never, ever again bring it back up or hold it against you or ever let it affect my disposition towards you in any way from this moment forward. How did Jesus forgive? He said, I confronted your wrong, but then I absorbed the sting. And my wife and I, we call it spent ammunition. When you do something wrong against the other spouse and you come and confess that, the other spouse forgives, you, you, that ammunition is now spent. You cannot put it in a gun and shoot it ever again. And if you did, then you didn't absorb the pain, which is, means you're not Christ-like in that forgiveness. If I take the ammunition that, and then I turn it back around and shoot you with it next time we get in a fight, I've not forgiven you. If I let it affect my disposition towards you, I've not really ever truly forgiven you. 
I fail to forgive. You say, well, I can't forget. Well, listen, forgiving doesn't mean that you physically can't remember it, okay? There's people, atrocious things that have been done to you, been done to me. doesn't mean you physically can't ever remember it. It means to the best of your ability and by God's grace, you will never bring it back up again and you will never let it affect your disposition. It doesn't color your relationships. Here's number three. You judge when you cut off those who disagree with you. You cut off those who disagree with you. Oh, my goodness, is this not America? You are judging when you disagree strongly with someone over something like faith. Let's don't make it. Let's get a little more tender. Uh, Something like morality, something like pro-life issue, something like politics, something like homosexuality issue. And because you can't agree, what you do is you cut them off. And you're basically saying, we can't really be friends if we disagree on this issue. Can I ask you today, do you have issues in your life like that right now? Do you have issues like that, that if you say someone doesn't agree with you, then you can't be friends? Can I say something? I don't want you to misinterpret it. Please don't misinterpret it. Please don't misinterpret it, but I want to say something. You have to love the person more than you love your position on a particular issue. You got to love the person more than you love your stance. You got to love the individual more than you love your disposition. That doesn't ever mean, by the way, you compromise the position or you fail to state the position. It just means that even when they disagree with the position, we don't cut them off. We say, yes, that issue is important. I can't compromise on that issue, but I love you more than I love being right. And even if you don't see things my way, I'm going to keep bringing you close and I'm going to remain committed to you. Mom and dad, you look at that son and say, you know what? You might not have married the person that I would have chosen for you to marry, but that doesn't mean I'm throwing you and your newfound wife out of our family. Doesn't mean I'm affecting and allowing that to color my disposition towards you as being the black sheep of a family. No, 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 no. That's judging. I'm not failing to state my position, but you know what? I'm also loving you more than I love my position. What's the best example of this? Not a trick question. Oh, of course, Jesus, right? That's the, that's the example, Jesus. But where is it with Jesus? It's Jesus and Judas, right? Remember what Judas does? Pretty amazing story, right? Judas comes up to him, and Judas, Judas, after he's already betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus knew it. He looks at him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what he says? Why have you come, friend? Time out. Time out. When it came to disagreement, the most important question on planet Earth is who is Jesus? And Judas said Jesus is not the son of God, and the son of God still offers the hand of friendship to him in that disagreement. Now think of another issue that you can bring up where you are able to cut people off. There's not one. Was he being sarcastic, by the way? Why have you come, friend? No. He's offering the hand of friendship. And Judas's right there, kisses the face of heaven and goes to hell the next morning. Think about that. He offers him friendship. He he hands him the hand of friendship. The ultimate statement of judgment is to say to someone, depart from me, because Jesus never said that even to us. Even after we betrayed him, he said, my friend. So how can I say depart from me to someone else when God didn't even say that to me? Many of you, you've made non-believers, you've made those people projects, and as soon as you saw they weren't going to change their mind, you said, depart from me. 
And they understood that because people know when you love them for them or you love them to be a project to be made into a Christian. Depart from me because you're not going to change your mind. Here's how you know you've judged them. You gossip. Folks, this is the most damaging one. This is the worst way to judge somebody, and it's the one we get away with in the church all the time. We most get away with this sin more probably than any other sin. And why is, why is gossip the worst kind? Because you're talking about somebody else's faults without giving them a chance to address those faults. So you're character assassinating them to another person without letting that person be right there to address what you're addressing. And by the way, it doesn't matter if we couch it with good southern phrases. Like in the, in the church is what we do. We call it a prayer request. Hey, connect group, I got a prayer request. And then you spend 22 minutes telling somebody about somebody else's junk, right? No, Jesus knows what their issue is. So just say, I got a prayer request, say their name and have, you, have them pray. Or here's another way. In our southern language, if you're new to the south, here's what we do. We couch it another way. We couch it with the phrase, bless his heart. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but in the south, if you say bless his heart, you can say whatever you want after it. You say bless his heart, he's such an idiot. But that, that, doesn't mean, that means you're judging him. You could say, bless, his, bless her heart, she's such a tramp. But it, does, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you're judging. It doesn't mean that. In, in America, this is how we do it, right? But yet we're still what? We're still judging. We're still gossiping. We're gossiping about that person. Here's number five. You refuse to receive criticism. You know you're judging when you refuse to receive criticism. What do you mean? Why is this a sign that we judge? Well, why do you and I hate criticism? Because <laughs> we don't like to admit we have faults. We don't like to admit we have faults, but if you understand the gospel, your faults shouldn't surprise you. Listen, when you point out my depravity, you know what I should say? Well, of course. Hey, here's a few others. You thought that one was bad. Can I tell you the rest of them? Can I tell you all my secret sins? You you thought that was disastrous. Let me tell you about really what's disastrous because I'm not surprised that you see my disastrous sins because I'm a sinner in need of grace each and every day. Oh, yeah, I'm a newborn creation, but I'm still given as I'm being transformed under the sway of the evil one, the one that's using the pull of the lust, the flesh, and the devil to try to get me to fall. Listen, when you don't do, you, when you don't receive criticism well, you are putting yourself in a position of perfection. And from that position of perfection, you can judge everybody else since they clearly have faults, but you clearly don't. Here's number six, and this one's really ironic. This is really ironic. You're actually judging someone when you refuse to correct someone else's position. Now, let me correct a wrong error here. You're actually judging someone when you let someone stay in error and think that they are right in error. What do you mean, Craig? When you won't tell somebody what God says and what God's word says is true and what they say is wrong, either you don't, number one, A, really believe what the Bible says is true, or B, you think it's no use, they'll never change, they won't listen. It's not worth the pain or the awkwardness of telling them the truth. When you do that, you just condemned a person and wrote them off to hell. When you don't confront somebody's sin, you just wrote them off and said they're beyond hope, which is the highest form of judgment, which leads us to number seven. You know you're judging when you write someone off as hopeless. When you write them off as hopeless. Can I ask you a question right now? Look up here. Who in right now in your life do you think is hopeless? Who have you quit talking to? 
Who has it been 25 years and you've still never seen change? Who in your life has it been 30 years and you've still never seen the seed of the gospel seem to break hard ground? Can I encourage you today? We serve a Savior who raises the dead. We serve a Savior who speaks to dead things and says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth. And here's the good thing about death. You don't get more dead over time. So if your dad's been spiritually dead two years, two months, or 200 years, he's no more dead today than he was 20 years ago. You're just dead, and Jesus raises dead things. There's no degrees or degradations of death. Jesus raises the dead. By the way, can I just, can I just do this? I think it would be good. I think it would be a great exercise. If you're in this room right now, and at some point in your life, you were considered by someone else to be hopeless, hopeless, a hopeless case. Why don't you just raise your hand right now? Now leave it up. Now look around. Does that know what make you want to sprint circles around this building? I know. Leave it up. Leave it up. Look, look how many hopeless, what was considered to be hopeless cases from somebody else. Someone thought you were hopeless. Aren't you glad they didn't give up on you, those with your hands raised? Amen? You can put your hand down. They never gave up on you. They continue to pursue you. They continue to pray for you. They continue to believe that God would get a hold of your heart. Can I hear an amen? Considered hopeless, but yet nothing's beyond the hope of Jesus. You can't write someone off as hopeless. In fact, when you keep on speaking the truth to them, this is what the Bible calls being full of grace and truth. Everybody say grace and truth, which was the description given to Jesus. Jesus and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. He's grace and truth. Everybody say grace. Say truth. Listen to me. Truth without grace is judgmental fundamentalism, and grace without truth is liberal sentimentality, and neither of them are Christian. Grace and truth is Christian speech. Grace and truth is the gospel. It's I'm speaking truth conditioned with grace. Is that what you're doing right now in your relationships with people in your life? Are you speaking grace or truth? Are you speaking truth with grace? By the way, if you're in here today, I got to say this real quick, and you're an unbeliever, you've probably seen Christians do this really badly. They've spoken truth to you, and I'm sorry, I've probably from this pulpit spoke truth very badly without grace. And can I tell you why that's the case? Because it's so easy for us to forget how much we've been forgiven of. I forget how jacked up my life was when I was 16. I, I, I readily forget that. I read, it's the easiest thing for us Christians to do, to forget really how far we've been brought from. So it's hard. It's hard sometimes for us to keep on speaking truth with grace because we've forgotten. In fact, the Bible would suggest that the main issue of all of our spiritual issues is because we've forgotten from how far we've been forgiven, how far we've really been brought. We've really been transformed. So now we come to verse 6. I hope you're being encouraged by this sermon in some way. hope it's bringing clarity. Look at verse 6. Notice what the Scripture says. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So what does this mean? It, it can't mean that we should refuse to really engage with someone who disagrees with us. Like Jesus is saying, oh, don't throw that awesome pearl of your wisdom, Pastor Craig, in front of people who disagree in Woodstock. That would be to miss the entire point of the first five verses. He just said, don't dismiss the person. That's not what it means. He, in fact, is giving you instructions on how to engage the people who don't believe like you. That's what he's doing. But that raises another question. 
is Jesus calling people dogs and pigs? Now, I'm not Jesus' apologist. You'll probably hear Pastor Chad say that because when you get into hard sayings of Jesus, the temptation is to try to explain away our Savior who doesn't need any explanation. Okay, I'm not his apologist. You take that up with him. But let me just offer you some context to maybe give you an understanding of where Jesus is coming from. Can I, can I do that just a moment? First of all, there are different forms of life on earth. And, and depending on how complex of a life form you are, you have the more capacity to understand value. Let me exa- give you an example. The lowest form of life is a plant. It's a tree, grass. And it responds to food and water, but it never gets excited about food. The plant never says, oh, yummy, 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 yummy. Here comes some cow manure. Woo, we're going to eat good tonight. It's good for me. Yummy cow manure. And they don't get scared when they see the lawnmower coming. Oh, no, oh, no, this is going to hurt so bad. This is the lowest life form. Those perceptions are beyond them. What's the next level of life? Animal life. And animals can get quite excited about food. Anybody have a dog in here? They know what the word food means, right? Or maybe you call it something different in your household, but I had a dog, and every time you'd say, it's food time, you know what happens? You know, they're wagging their tail, they're salivating like a Pavlov's response, you know? But if you gave that dog a pearl, you put that pearl before them, you know what they're going to do? Sniff and then get bored. Why? Because a pearl is of great value. Now, that pearl could buy them 10,000 doggy meals, but they can't perceive it. So it's not valuable to them. And they're like, well, I can't eat this junk. I'm on to the next thing. And then they come after you, Jesus said, because at least you're edible. They come after you because at least they can eat you. Humans, however, are the highest form of life, and they can recognize the value of pearls. So what's Jesus saying right here? He's saying throughout the Gospels, Jesus compares the message of his kingdom to a pearl, but he says some people don't have the capacity to grasp it because there's a higher form of life than the human life, and it's life given by the Spirit. And until somebody has the Spirit of God to give them spiritual eyes to understand the value of the Gospel you're presenting to them, your value and your presentation of the Gospel will mean nothing to them. Now, I know that seems offensive to you if you're an unbeliever, in here, but I'm just telling you, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you're unbeliever, you're lame. He said, you're dead, and you're, you're not even able to walk. And unless God in heaven, by his spirit, transmits some spiritual life to you, you will not be able to perceive the value of the gospel, perceive the value of the pearl. God must give us spiritual eyes so we can see the value of spiritual things. So what does that parable mean practically for you? I really want to give you some handles, if you can, to make this practical. Number one, make prayer your main weapon. Everybody say prayer. Why? Because only supernatural power gives sight to the blind. Make prayer your main weapon. In terms of talking to unbelievers or people who disagree with you, make prayer the main weapon. As Ian Bounds says, we shouldn't try to talk to a person about God without also talking to God about that person. I've given you the illustration before, but what about the insane man? What Jesus says is you don't get in front of a dog and persuade the dog of the value of a pearl. No, I promise you. Can I give you the PowerPoint presentation of how powerful this is and how valuable this is, doggy? Come here, doggy. I want you to look at this pearl. No, look at it from a different angle. Would you look at it from this angle? And this is what we do in witnessing, right? We're, We're talking to people who have no spiritual eyes about the value of the gospel and Jesus who died for them and they can't understand it because too often we've talked to them about God before we talk to God about them. 
This is why it's not good for us to not spend time weeping before the Lord, asking God to give them spiritual eyes before we open their, open our mouths and speak to them the gospel. And he says it's not about persuading the dog of the value. It's not because you don't have enough PowerPoint presentation and rhyme with your lines to get people to understand. You know what he says? If you have a man 30 stories high and he's, he's, he's totally insane, he's lost his mind, and he thinks he's a bird, and he just watched a superhero's movie, and he wants to fly like Spider-Man. And I walk up on that 30-story building, and I walk up behind him, and I say, hey, brother, don't do it. If you step off, you're going to die. What's he going to do every time? He's going to jump off, and he's going to die every time. But if I walk up on that roof 30 stories high, and I have one of those men in black uh, flashy things, those men, remember those flashy things, men in black? If I have one of those men in black flashy things, and I walk up there, and I say, sir, and it restores his sanity, and all of his sanity comes back. And I say, hey, you got two options. Come back down or jump off and you die. What's he going to do every time? He's going to come back down. It's the same choice with the same options with no extra persuasion required, and it all has to do with the sanity that is restored. Listen to me. Prayer is the means by which God restores sanity into the mind of the unbeliever. They will, they will choose a different deal when God gives them spiritual infusion. And prayer is the way we get God to infuse them with spiritual understanding. The problem is not you're not persuasive enough with your dad who won't accept Jesus. The problem is your dad has a dog nature. The problem isn't that your, your points haven't rhymed. It's that spiritual life has not been infused into his mind. Oh, wow, this takes off all of the weight in witnessing. And it puts on all the weight in us to intercede. And we're not to persuade, we're to present. And we're to keep loving and keep making prayer our main weapon. Number, oh, oh, oh let me give you an example. Uh, disciples were bothered, they couldn't cast out a demon. And Jesus said, this comes out only by prayer and fasting. He did not say, your points didn't rhyme in that village. You did not have message cards. Why? Because it's time, it is time with God in a closet that gives you power in a pulpit. I'm going to say it again. It's time with God in a closet that gives you power in the pulpit. I'm not talking about this pulpit. I'm talking about the pulpit of your cubicle. I'm talking about the pulpit of your workspace. It's time with God in your prayer closet that will give you power in your workplace. This is what he says. That's why we make prayer a main weapon. Number two, be sensitive to what people can handle. Many people in the ancient Israel were pig farmers. They had to feed pigs. And Jesus is saying, look, be smart. They don't appreciate the pearl. Don't give them that yet. You know what? It reminds me, Jesus once told a, a, a people, uh, come on, Casey. Jesus once told a, a crowd of people. He said, there's many other things I want to teach you, but you're not ready for them yet. Have you ever thought about Jesus making that statement in the gospel? It's in Luke. He says, there's many other things I want to tell you, but you're not ready for them yet. What was Jesus doing? Was he like courage? No. Did he, was he scared? No. Did, did, did he want to compromise truth in that moment? No. He just said some people aren't ready for certain things. You ever found this to be true? You know how C.S. Lewis does this? By the way, if I was the czar of the educational world, I would let nobody graduate high school without reading mere Christianity, okay? Or for that matter, college. If I was the czar, but I'm not the czar. So C.S. Lewis writes in a book called Mere Christianity, Required Reading. His chapter there, one of the last chapters in the book is called... Um, is his chapter on sexual ethics. And when he starts writing about sexual ethics, it's pretty interesting because I think it applies to our context. He talks in there, he says, in this chapter on sexuality, he starts presenting a, 
a traditional view of, of sexuality. One man, one woman, monogamous for life. And then he says, if you're reading this book and this really bothers you, and you can't get over this, you have a different orientation, homosexuality, transsexuality, whatever it is that you have, sexuality. He says, just punt it for a while. Don't, don't talk about this anymore. He said, why not punt it for a while? And he said, why not deal with the real issue, which is the lordship of Jesus, and then come back to sexual ethics? Because, I, I quote, he said, sexual ethics aren't the center of the Christian claim. They are the implication of the Christian claim. The center of the Christian claim is the lordship of Jesus. So listen, if it's a problem with somebody, just say, hey, let's don't talk about it anymore. Let's really talk about the lordship issue. And if we can get the lordship issue down, then all the implication issues will be easy. See, just, just pun it. Who is Jesus to you? Because if he's Lord, what he says goes. And what he says is what he says. Which tells us the next thing, if we don't want to judge, we need to seek conversion to Christ before persuasion to your point of view. You can put hashtag Facebook right here. Seek conversion to Christ in people's lives before persuasion to your point of view. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, stood before two men. He answered Pilate's questions, but he stood silent before Herod. You don't handle a Pilate and a Herod in exactly the same way. You become an expert in knowing what to give each type. You answer the questions of a Pilate, but you say nothing to Herod. Why? Because you listen to people and you know what they need. In John chapter 11, two sisters meet Jesus. Their brothers died. His name's Lazarus. They say the exact same thing to Jesus. Jesus gives one a theological answer. Her name's Martha. He cries with the other, Mary. Why? Because he knows what they need. And you won't know what they need until you listen to them. There's sometimes you need to speak a theological truth to somebody that's hurting. Sometimes you put your arms around them, you fall on your knees, and you weep with them. But you won't know what you need to do until you listen. Until you listen. And we're not good at listening, which leads me to the next one. Devote yourself to listening before speaking. Devote yourself to listening before speaking. The Medical Journal, I told you before, I read just the New York Times just recent. Why, there's an epidemic in our nation in the medical field called the misdiagnosis epidemic. And the reason there's a misdiagnosis is not because the doctors need more education. Did you know this? It's not because they need to understand medicines better, although I think they do. It's because the average time a doctor listens to you before they diagnose you is 18 seconds. They are peg-holing your issue within 18 seconds of you opening your mouth. <laughs> That's why I love one of my mechanics over here, King Smith. He's my mechanic because he's a Honda guy, and I'm a Honda and Toyota guy, so anything I have, I say, come on, King, what's going on with my car? And he, he never just throws it out there. He's like, what sound does it make? And I'm like, <laughs> and he's like, what did, what did it do then? Well, when I went around the curb, it went, you know, and he's like, oh, I know. And he never misses it. It's because he listens. That stuff means nothing to me. But he never misses it because he listens. You got to devote yourself to listening before speaking. Here's the next one. You want to be a non-judger? Be patient with the pace of God in someone's life. I know there's people in here who waited for years for sons and parents and husbands and daughters come to know Jesus. Amen? You waited for years. A few years ago, I won my, two years after I met Jesus, I won my best friend who I used to drugs and craziness and 
crazy lifestyle with, and it took two years of me praying and setting an example before him before he came to Christ. I reached out to him almost daily, loved him. And I remember on Facebook, I wrote the post the morning. It was a simple paragraph of what God had done in his life. And, I, and then I put underneath that paragraph, it's crazy because some of you right now, you're reading this, and it took you 15 seconds to read that paragraph, but that 15 seconds that you took to read represented two years of my life. It's two years. You got to be patient with the pace of God in someone else's life. And you keep praying. Next one, it's okay to back out of destructive relationships. If you're in here, I believe what Jesus is also saying in your implication is that Jesus is teaching there's a time when you have to back out of an abusive relationship. You got to back out of it. And Jesus gives you permission to do so. Another thing, sometimes on the other side of that, you have to be willing to be torn. You got to be willing to be torn. I'm thinking here not of a physically abusive relationship, but in terms of evangelism. You know what Psalm 22 is? This is what's so amazing. He says, don't give your pearls to dogs. But you know what Jesus said about his prophecy while he was dying? Bulls and dogs surround me. They open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. Catch this. Through the suffering of dogs, he changed them. And it's through our patient sacrifice that we change others. Don't throw your pearl to dogs, but yet the dogs were surrounded him. And because he patiently endured the dogs, he changed the dogs. And God says to us, if you will be patient, you can change others. You can change others. You know what that means for you? That means you're going to have to be okay with being publicly identified with Jesus. Everybody say public identification. I want to read two verses and I close. Look what he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. This is simply being described as being shamed for Jesus. Some of you are going to be shamed for following Jesus. Can I encourage you as I close? He said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. Jesus put this verse in the Bible, church. None of us like feeling rejection. Does anybody in here like feeling rejection? Anybody like to sign up for it? Weekly rejection, just to keep you humble? Didn't think so. The feeling of rejection is real. Look what MRI studies tell us. The feeling of rejection is real. My studies show us that the same areas of the brain become activated when we experience rejection is when we experience physical pain. Physical pain. Rejection comes when we look for acceptance and we don't receive it. I don't like being rejected. I don't like people thinking I'm weird. But this seems to be a part of what it really means to follow Jesus' disciple. You've got to be willing to be rejected. Look what Jesus says in Luke 6.22. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Does anybody really feel blessed when you get rejected? I want to encourage your heart here. This is where God really stirred me last night. You're going to be rejected in our culture. You're going to be rejected. He said, blessed are you. We hate rejection. We spend money on counselors to deal with rejection. We get rejected in early childhood by our parents. We get rejected in middle school by our peers. I sat down with a high school student, or no, a seventh grade student years ago in our youth ministry. The student was reeling out of control, pain in their life. And I sat down and I said, what's going on with you? They've been homeschooled their whole life. They went into school for that year for the very first time. And on their very first day of school, he's sitting in class, sitting there in class. And a cute girl taps him on the shoulder. And he turns around and she hands him a note. And he opened up the note and there were five words in that note. And in that single note, it said, your bottom lip sticks out. It wasn't, hey, would you go with me? But hey, welcome to school. Hey, your bottom lip sticks out. And, and he turned back around and put the note away. And he's like, I don't know what are you talking about? You know, like, 
What's your name? And he said to me, he said, Craig, five words produced insecurity for the next six years of my education. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Rejection. What is a job interview? It's called preparing for rejection. What is dating in the ATL? It's called a culture of rejection. It's hard for older folks to deal with rejection. Don't just think it's young people. You're 52 years old. You're filled with wisdom. And a 23-year-old with a degree fires you. It's hard to be rejected. We have no psychological mechanisms that help us deal with rejection in a healthy way. You know what the unhealthy way to deal with rejection is? It's to rid your heart of feeling altogether. I don't care what they think, but that's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do when he was rejected? Jesus had a way of keeping his heart alive while still embracing the pain and still blessing others. They're crucifying him on a cross and mocking him and spitting on him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. If we're going to be disciples in our day and age, we have to learn the art of dealing with rejection and yet loving the people who reject us at the same time. Bob Sorhey in his book called The Praise of Man says this. He says, those who fear the rejection of man have a deep yearning for the praise of man and they set their souls up for repetitive heartache. Their response to that pain is expressed in anger. That's why the scripture says the fear of man brings a snare. As long as you are seeking the acceptance of man, you are making yourself vulnerable to the rejection of man. If man's acceptance will build you up, man's rejection will devastate you. What does that mean? The key to making it right now is to live with a deep sense of the Father's acceptance. And I know that's incredibly hard for us. When I became a believer and I didn't do what my friends wanted me to do, I kept reminding myself the Father's acceptance. And I kept it all together. Or when I was at school, oh yeah, you can mock me, you can do whatever you want. When I went home and I cried like a baby for hours. I was a dude for years that was joking and mocking everybody else. Now it was turned to me. And I was having a hard time. So I'd get alone in the presence of God and listen to worship music and remind myself of the Father's acceptance. Look what Henry Nowen said about rejection. He says so beautifully in this great passage that he writes in his book. You got Henry Nowen. Look what he says. He says, first of all, you have to keep unmasking the world about you for what it is. It's manipulative. It's controlling. It's power hungry. In the long run, it's destructive. The world tells you many lies about who you are. And you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, every time you feel offended, every time you feel rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, what do you say to yourself? Here's what you say to yourself. Go to the next slide. These feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I can't feel it right now, is that I'm a chosen child of God. I'm precious in God's eyes. I'm called the beloved from all eternity. I'm held safe in an everlasting belief. I tell people when I'm counseling all the time, I said, I've been here 30 minutes with you, and you said, I feel 22 times. I'm here to validate your feelings, but your feelings aren't truth. They're not truth. You accept them. So you got to get in God's presence. we got to develop this over time in discipleship. This morning, my little girl turned six, seven, oh, nine, eight, eight middle child. So last night at two o'clock in the morning, I thought, you know what? I got a bright idea. I went and got big cardstock. I didn't plan on using this. I got big cardstock and I started writing. I wrote probably 50, drew 50 pictures. She was sleeping on the couch last night upstairs in the bonus room. So I took each picture about every two feet and I went through the house. So when she woke up this morning, she would follow them, right? She was going to go down the refrigerator and then I put some in her car seat in the car and I put some where she was going to brush her teeth. And what happened was she woke up in the middle of the night and got in my bed with me and missed all that because it was dark. So I woke up this morning before her, and 
and I watched her go around the corner and she started seeing where she was and it got real quiet. And I said, I'm just going to sit here. I'm in a hurry. I got to get to church, but I just sit there. And she went and gathered them all up. And she came over to the bed. She said, Daddy, who's writing all of these? I said, look what it says. She can't read. She's going to kindergarten. I said, love Daddy. And she said, read them to me. And I read them. One was a list of my five, five favorite things I do with my little girl. Another one is her birth story. And I, I just started reading there on the bed with her. And I'm not kidding. Not kidding. I got done with them. Her mom's in the shower. She stands up. Is this not the Lord speaking to me? And she gets up on her tuppy toe, tippy toes because she's six this morning. She said, Daddy, I feel taller this morning. And the Spirit of the Lord, my God, He took a, a spear and pierced my heart and said, That's what the Father says to you. You ought to feel taller. because you've grown and you're older, but because you are His Son and daughter. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that the precious Holy Spirit would settle over every heart that is wondering and every heart that has found itself in condemnation and judgment. And that, Lord, right now in Your presence, Lord, that we would feel just such a sense of great acceptance and love because we know that You, You have given Your life for us. You've laid down Your life for us. Lord, even while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You spoke truth to us and that you drew us to yourself. And today, if there are those in this room that need the love of the Father to embrace them once again, to draw them nigh, I pray that your great grace would fill their souls, fill their heart, help them to experience, Lord, your great love and your great acceptance. That, Lord, nothing, nothing they've ever done or ever could do could separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I pray just for that ministry of your spirit to settle upon people and just help their minds to be at peace and rest where they're so anxious. Let the effects of righteousness and tranquility and assurance and peace fill their soul today, I pray. God, I thank you that you do all things well. You make no mistakes. I thank you that every person in here who made failures, including myself, that, Lord, those failures don't have to define us. We are bigger than our mistakes. We are bigger than the last disastrous sin. We are children of God if we've repented and put faith in you. We're dearly beloved. That's who we are. We're the children of God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Lord, these are words of your scripture, but until you take your spirit and your finger and you apply them to the hearts of the listeners, they will not produce fruit. So do that right now, Jesus. Right now, just take your finger and apply it to every heart, every soul, every, every mind that is racing. And let peace, let your peace, let your great wisdom, your great love wash over us again, we pray. In Jesus' name. If you today say, you know what, I am his son or daughter. I just want to make confession today. But you know what, I, I want to remember again from how far he's brought me. I don't want to judge others. I don't want to be more enraged at other people's sin than my own. I want you, oh God, to remind me again of your great loving kindness. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.